you are listening to Grace and Mercy Podcast. This podcast is for people who want to know the grace of God and how it really changes the way we interact with the world. I'm your host, author Darlene Bojack, and in this episode, we're going to find out what Joshua has to say about grace. Let's do a little bit of a review. In this podcast, we go through the books of the Bible sequentially, alternating between Old Testament and New Testament. So we started in Genesis, and we did the first five books there, and we also did the first five books of the New Testament. Um, In Genesis, uh, we discovered the use of the idea um, of doing a favor, and uh, grace is about doing a favor, asking somebody to do, if if I've found favor in your sight. And there's not much in terms of what we are looking for, New Testament grace. Exodus, uh, the word grace is concentrated on one conversation about God being with his people or not. In Leviticus, we contrasted law and grace and discovered how Leviticus prepares our hearts for grace. And in Deuteronomy, especially chapter 24, we discovered the abomination of unfaithfulness to God and his grace in bringing back his, his favored ones, his beloved. Okay, um, in New Testament, we found that Matthew and Mark, both, they do not show much grace. Uh, although we do discover the cognate joy, uh, that the, the cognate for, for grace in the New Testament, um, grace is charis, and the New Testament, the cognates are kara and kairo, which are joy and rejoicing. We learned, for example, in Mark, uh, that there's this ironic use of joy and then when we moved into Luke, like light in the darkness, God's grace exploded on the scene when Christ, when the birth of Christ is announced. And then in John, we discover the relationship now between Charisse, which is grace, and Kara and Cairo, which are joy and rejoicing, we discovered that the relationship is causal. That, according to the use in the Bible, joy is a reaction to grace, and grace results in joy. So God's grace results in the heart rejoicing. So then, thinking back into Matthew, uh, the use of the joy... For example, the wise men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So there's um, all sorts of superlatives uh, and use of both the noun and the verb form of joy. But because of grace, you see, because as we said in Luke, the discovery of Christ brings that joy. The discovery of grace, Christ and grace are almost, uh, they're, they're intertwined, Right. So today we're going to investigate Joshua in light of these discoveries. Joshua is a difficult book, especially for people who don't understand covenant. Uh, Joshua is a book that a lot of um, terrorists point to saying, hey, your God is the same as Allah. 
there's a lot of Christians who would just like to cut the Old Testament off altogether because of the book of Joshua. The conquests of Joshua are very, they, they make people very uncomfortable because people were devoted to destruction. And that just doesn't match the loving God that they see in the New Testament. I think Joshua, though, is critical for our understanding of grace. I think that in Joshua, God makes the distinction that is grace. So we're going to study that. Uh, Before we uh, start discussing it, I wanted to read Psalm 119, 142. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. So in this verse, grace is connected to being a person who loves God's name, not just a person who carries God's name, which we would say would be a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only, but a person who loves the name of God, who is not ashamed of the name of God. And if you think about it, after all that Christ did, shedding his blood, to be ashamed shows you really don't get it. To to want the name but not the honor or the shame of Christ. So um, the, the concept that I wanted to share before we go into Joshua is this concept of enemies, his and our enemies. If you're familiar with the Westminster Catechism, you'll say, wait a minute, I've heard that phrase before. Uh, we will, uh, I will tell you where, you where you've heard that before. You probably know. There is a commentary about um, about this idea. And in the commentary, Kiel said, regarding God's punishments, the divine penal judgments reveal not only the holiness and righteousness of God, but also prepare the way for the revelation of salvation and minister to the saving of the soul. So seeing the judgment of God prepares the world for this thing that's called grace. Before we understand grace, we have to know what's coming, right? We have to know the consequence. And um, I mentioned to a friend of mine years ago, I said to her, well, Joshua is just a parallel or a a preparation for us to understand how Christ is uh, wiping this world of his enemies and of sin. You know, our being uh, going into the promised land is a story. The story of Israel going into the promised land is the story of the church walking into a life of faith. And she said to me, I don't see it that way. And the way that she answered was as if there wasn't a purpose for the book of Joshua. You know that the name Jesus and the word Joshua are the same thing. In fact, in the King James Version, when Stephen is giving his testimony, and he mentions Joshua coming into the land, he actually uses the word Jesus. So the word Jesus is basically his name. Yeshua is the same as Joshua, which means salvation. The Lord saves. So let's let's look now at this question in the Westminster Confession. 
Question 26. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Answer. Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So what we see in the book of Joshua is God restraining and conquering all his and Israel's enemies. Israel was a foreshadowing of the church. Many of the people in Israel were uh, counted as God's uh, chosen people. Um, Many of them did not walk in faith. So even the distinction within Israel, God always distinguished between those who were grieved and those who um, were wanting God's uh, will and God's pleasure and those who just were after them, their own desires. That's undisputable uh, distinction that the Old Testament makes. So as Christ today executes the office of a king, he is restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Um, the verses that are given to support this, Psalm 110.3, The people shall be willing on the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. Uh, that, is, that is regarding subduing us to himself. Isaiah 33.22, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. 1 Corinthians 15.25, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Acts 12.17, But he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Then he said, Go, show these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. And Acts 18.9-10 Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. So in here we see the example of Peter and Paul, who God ruled, defended, restrained, and conquering their enemies. And we see the statement that Christ is our king and how he is uh, using his kingship to guard and protect his people. Okay, we have a couple verses about this. Isaiah 63 talks about the fact that God was doing this all throughout the Old Testament times. In all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Isaiah 63, 9. So in preparation for Joshua, we are looking at the conquest in light of Christ's conquests. The only way we can understand Leviticus is by understanding the New Testament. The only way we can understand the conquests is by understanding the New Testament. The presence of Christ gives light to those um, those uh, 
decimations of peoples. So in light of that, let's look at the single time that a cognate of the word grace is found in Joshua. That is in Joshua 11.20, starting at verse 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negeb and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon before Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. And here's our verse. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. In this case, the word for grace is translated as mercy here. They should receive no mercy, but be destroyed. This is the one time the book of Joshua has the word grace. And that's, um, that is not the chen or the chanan that we saw. That is actually the word um, tehina, tehina. So it has han in there. It is um, from hanan. This one is defined as a favor or supplication for favor, requesting for favor, right? And so the only place we find it is in this this verse about devoting them to destruction. What can we make of that? Why is this the only place God mentions grace in the conquests? Let's review again that he is the king. He is subduing his and our enemies. Okay? Now, we have a big question that's wrapped up in here, which is, why would God just harden their hearts if what if they just became believers themselves, God fearers? They could they could have just all converted. We we wish that were the case. Um and you know Romans nine talks about this. Romans nine fifteen says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion. I'm on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever, whoever he wills. So we see that here in Joshua. We don't have the right to ask God why he chooses to show his judgment here instead of his mercy, because that's completely tied to him, not to who they were, not even to the fact that they were human. A humanist would say 
The fact that they're human means that they should be treated equally. But the way that God sees it is he treats his people one way. And not always kindly. In fact, from the end of Romans 8, we see that his people are even not going to be treated the right way on this earth by the people of this earth. Jesus also warned us of that. But what we see is that he, he has a special regard and a special protection, a special guard around his people. In Job, it was called the hedge of protection, right? He has a special guard around his people. And people who are not his people, he doesn't have that guard around. And they are uh, culpable for immediate judgments. You know, in a sense, they're, they're on an indefinite reprieve. At the same time, he put Christians in the world. Christians are compassionate, right? We're compassionate. We, at this point in our existence, we empathize with the lost. We empathize with their state of not knowing God. We empathize and we say to God, along with Stephen, we say, hold back. Do not hold this against them. Hold back your wrath, right? And our job on earth is to, to intercede for those people. But in the time of Joshua, he was told that it, their time had come. This was their judgment day. So we see in Joshua the swiftness of God's judgment. And we see the sureness of God's judgment that these people who are not in the family of faith are doomed to destruction. And it's swift and it's coming surely uh, as a parallel to judgment day in the New Testament in, in the, at, the, at the end and beginning of our eternity. So to shed, shed light on... And this, we need to go to Joshua 5, 13, starting at verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So to understand this single time that the word grace shows up in the book of Joshua, we have to understand God's perspective on sin and on holiness. He says clearly here that he's the commander of the Lord's army, and he says he's neither on Joshua's side nor on the enemy's side, but he is on the Lord's side. And he's on the side of holiness. So in light of Christ being the king, in light of the fact that Joshua bowed down here and was told the land, the place he is standing is holy, which is a parallel to Moses's encounter with God, we know that this is a pre-incarnate Christ 
that he is encountering, who is a king subduing his and our enemies. So as Romans 9 tells us, God's purposes for mercy or no mercy, his purposes are reserved for his will, for his pleasure. As, as Paul says, Romans 9, uh, who, is, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Now, who are we to ask God why, uh, why not them? But do you know that really we are told to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation? And so we have this uh, mediator role now when we have compassion on people around us, while we have this, this worry for their soul, the worry for, for this feeling of, of unfairness, in a sense. But the unfairness in itself is this favor, right? God has favor on his people. And the other people are destined to destruction, or they're destined, they're, they're devoted to destruction. Again, Romans 9.22, it says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. And then it goes and mentions Hosea 2. Remember, we just talked about Hosea 2. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And to her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. You see, we were given this great commission to go and to spread this possibility to those same people who were potentially destined for destruction. In a in a strange way, God has given us this ministry of reconciliation that we can intervene and we can add to Joshua's conquest by conquering it with the gospel first before the judgment comes. So when we as Christians look at the conquest, we're like, wait, but they're missing something. They're missing a chance. And you see, that's what Christ brought. He brought the chance. In the Old Testament, it was the people who were in the physical location of Israel, of the Ark of the Covenant, who were able to understand and know about God. Some people who were brought in to Israel through slavery or through becoming an acquaintance with the Hebrews, they were exposed, like Naaman, right? They were exposed to the gospel and to and became some of them became God fearers. We see God the the phrase God fearers in the New Testament when Christ is there, the God and during the book of Acts, the God fearers are these people who who were drawn to Israel but they remained Gentiles, right? But in during the conquests, it was not, it was the, mis, the mystery had not been shown. So they were simply bringing the judgment of God, the swiftness of the judgment of God. But what we are doing is we are, we are doing the conquest of this world. But our conquest is through the gospel. We bring 
the ministry of reconciliation, we bring the option for salvation to these people before the destruction is coming, right? Isn't that what the book of Revelation is? It's saying before the destruction, get your hearts right. Before the destruction, get your lives right. You know, commit, uh, bow to this, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the book of, the book of Joshua is, is showing us clearly that it is God's people who are the only ones who are not going to be judged. And in a sense, I think, you know, there's those verses in the New Testament that say we will judge the world. In a sense, in a sense, Joshua was the, the hand of justice. And in a sense, we are, we are granting mercy as we s- spread the gospel. We are, we're handing them a, a, an opportunity for, for receiving that, that mercy or to become a favored one of God. We're, we're handing that to them. A couple more things about the book of Joshua. When, when the commander said he's not for Joshua or for the enemy, he was saying he is for God's people, right? Likewise, when Joshua came into the land, he said to his people, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, who is under whom? Who is serving whom? The commander is not serving Joshua. You see, Joshua is serving the commander. You know, this commander is not coming in and going to be fighting for Joshua. He is, Joshua is fighting for the commander. Right? I'm not for you. Are you for me? Is what, in a sense, I think what the commander is saying. So, so we have Joshua after he's come into the land, he's presenting to the people again, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we have uh, some other verses about for you, God being for you, for his people. Joshua 1 9, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord. Your God is with you wherever you go. A couple verses later, pass through the midst of the camp and command of the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over the Jordan to go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Chapter 3, verse 10. And Joshua said, Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. So in the case of Joshua, he is he and his conquests are a shadow of two things. First of all, the conquest of in our lives of our and his enemies. So on this earth, it's also a shadow of the final judgments. Right? So temporary temporarily he is the, he is conquering our enemies even as we are on this earth and it's a shadow of the final conquest getting rid of all the bad guys in the world 
right? He's getting rid of all the God-haters in the world when he sets up his eternal kingdom, which will be a place of no strife, right? A place of no war. Everyone will be living uh, for God. There will be no option but to live for God because everybody will, will want to be living for God. Everyone will be uh, rejoicing in God. But then we see in Joshua 22, only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and all of your soul. And a few verses later that uh, you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. You may not mix with these nations, verse uh, 23, verse 7, you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. Uh, verse uh, Chapter 23, verse 12, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So chapter 24 uh, talks reviews the whole story of Israel, uh, Joshua 24, and he ends by saying, And Joshua said to all the people, people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Okay, and so the the one time we see mention of the word grace, it refers us again to Hosea 2. I will have mercy on whom I have, have mercy, and I will harden those whom I will harden, uh, the Lord said. It is this soft heart that we have that we need to recognize is the gift of God. He has softened our hearts. And with that soft heart, we have compassion. Uh, we are entering the land, and we are rubbing shoulders with people who love this world and people who hate God. We have compassion for them and we were told to go and preach the gospel to them, but we are also told to not be changed by them, to not give into their gods. So the story of Joshua as a story of the, the church is a story of conquest by bringing grace and remaining true to God. So, Ezekiel 3, uh, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand." But if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. 
because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hands. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. In light of the conquest of Joshua and the consequential uh, fall of Israel into idolatry, notice that it's it's a very difficult thing that Ezekiel 3 mentions here, that being a watchman, you are standing in Vanity Fair, to use another analogy, you're standing in Vanity Fair and you're you're calling out truth right there. I mean, that is a scary place to be because you are the, you are in the enemy territory, walking through the enemy territory. Uh, this is, this world does not love God, does not love the things of the Lord and being blinded to the things of God finds truth wrong and falsehood true. So, As Christ subdues us to himself, conquers our enemies and his enemies, he has also given us an additional directive that Joshua's people did not have, which was to bring the gospel of grace, right? So he's subduing them through this gospel, through the word of his mouth, and and just like in Ezekiel, some will, some, some will be influenced and some will not. Or as in Isaiah shows, Isaiah 6, I'm sending you to these people. They're not going to listen to you. Ezekiel also says that in a different place in Ezekiel. They're not going to listen to you, but you still have to tell them. You're standing in Vanity Fair. You're proclaiming the, the coming judgment. The, you're proclaiming this, this favor of God. But you're handing handing out a an op, offer of of mercy you're handing out you're you're holding out this grace to them so let's think a final time about this analogy of of the world being like Joshua's conquests or the world also being like in like walking through vanity fair and and speaking to the people in vanity fair 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to demolish strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So we are destroying arguments in our own heads. We are demanding our own minds to comply and to conform to to God's word. But we are also using our words in this battle. The the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword, is not. So to conclude, I wanted to read Acts twenty twenty eight. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood.
most of the people listening to this are not official overseers of a church, but we are overseers of our children who we are preaching the gospel to, or our friends, or our siblings. We oversee their soul as we know something maybe that they don't know about the gospel. But remember that as we're holding out this grace, the people who are God's people, the people who are going to become Christians, are the ones that Christ died for. So so we're telling the people who were so precious that he obtained them with his own blood, we're telling them, we're finding them by saying, um, by, by evangelizing. Um, Colossians 4, 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Christ gave himself. We need to likewise be giving ourselves. Uh, giving ourselves. We need to be out there and conquering ideas, conquering thoughts, and bringing the true ideas, uh, the true word into a, a world filled with lies. So in conclusion, what do we learn from Joshua? We learn that God, God's judgment is coming. And either you are on the Lord's side or you're not. Either you are in God's favor or you are his enemy. And we also learned that Joshua's conquest was a parallel to, to the Christian life, how Christ is king over our lives, bringing us into um, a life of sanctification as we are in this world, but not of this world. And that Joshua's conquest was one of swords, ours is one of ideas, and we are to remain true to God as we fight these ideas. We are given the ministry of reconciliation. Joshua did not have that ministry of re- reconciliation. He was told not to make covenants with the people. So we have, because of Christ, we have a way to, to draw those people into that mercy, which is the greatest argument people have against the book of Joshua. There's no mercy because they are bringing a New Testament sensibility uh, applying it to the, the Old Testament without recognizing that that's, that is one of the points. That's the point of the Great Commission, isn't it? So let's pray. Let's pray about this. Lord, this world is, is in darkness and it's getting, it seems that it's getting darker and darker and the light is getting rarer and rarer. We are the light of the world, just as you were the light of the world. We are a city on a hill. We pray that we would be faithful, not hide our light under a basket, but that we be faithful in spreading this gospel while it is still today, while there is still a chance for people to to come to Christ. I pray that you would keep us strong and faithful, that we would not um, bend to the pleasures all around us, that we would not be drawn away from our primary task of declaring the truth. We pray that you would use us as your conquerors of ideas, demolishing arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. I pray that we would speak the truth, that your word that's sharper than any two-edged sword, 
that it can that it can pierce through those bad ideas and and into the hearts of our friends who are who are in blind and deaf to the destruction that is that is coming upon them we thank you for giving us this ministry of reconciliation and please use us in this in this world in our city in our neighborhood in our friend group um, however you are using us we thank you again that christ is our king he is our conqueror he's conquering um, his and our enemies both um, in the in the spiritual realm, in our emotional and, and thought life, and in the physical world. You are uh, subduing this world to yourself. And we are so glad we're on your side and that you are for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, thank you for listening to Grace and Mercy Podcast with author Darlene Bojack. This has been episode 13 of season one, Finding Grace. Question of the week. Where have you been hurt by an absence of Christian grace? Uh, make sure to answer any of the questions of the week on the show notes page. You can find the show notes for this episode, including links to the verses we talked about at graceandmercypodcast.com. Okay, friends, see you next time. <laughs>